Hello, everybody. Kyle here, and welcome back to a new episode of the Chaos and Shadow podcast. I'm joined by my co-host, Pagan. Pagan, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm good. We are diving into the first official episode of the Mothman series. Today, we are looking at the cryptid behind the Mothman case, the most iconic of figures, which is the humanoid with red eyes that glow and wings. Now, for those tuning in, you may have caught last week's prologue episode where we just gave uh, general overviews of the Mothman case. We talked about what areas of the lore we're familiar with personally and what areas we plan on doing extra investigative work into. So for this episode, uh, as we put into some of the notes last time, we pulled heavily from The Mothman of Point Pleasant, a small town monsters documentary. This one did a fantastic job going above and beyond the norm, pulling in a ton of side cases, Pagan. I had no clue about mm-hmm. all those little sightings here and there. Right. It was such a great documentary and highly recommend it. It it really kind of painted the Mothman story in such a bigger light than we were really expecting because, you know, there, there's very, I want to say there's very limited written sources other than the Mothman prophecies and a couple mm-hmm. of other books, but mostly it's, it's not, it's well known, but it's not well documented. That is interesting. You you bring up a really, really great point there that I think I described Keel's Mothman prophecies as kind of like the Bible for this case. Mm-hmm. And I'd stand by that. But just like the Bible, it's not historically accurate. It has right. a lot of issues. Um, and I want to say less issues than we talked about with last month's Skinwalker Ranch stuff that uh, the Hunt for the Skinwalker book seemingly totally fictitious in this case keel's book is more anecdotes really mm-hmm. truly drawing that biblical connection together where it's like the things that made it into the book were things that keel experienced um they don't always i, I want to say that like he did a pretty good job maintaining the story but it was published later uh, after he'd already left left west virginia so it, it has some just potential inaccuracies but more than that, I would say it just, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't give a full scope to the case. Beautiful book that's very like gets yes. you in the vibe. But um, there's just so many mini sightings that unless you were doing a book, maybe like more like the UFO report we looked at for uh, the Uinta Valley, mm-hmm. that one was very factual, right? It was like time and date, time and date, time and date. Here's all these issues or the sightings and when they happen. There are a lot of time and date little sightings here that just couldn't make it into Keel's book there. It wouldn't have fit the vibe. So in today's, right. we're going to be spending time calling out some of these sightings because, again, wow, just way more than I thought. There is a lot more. And it it definitely also doesn't give you exactly that 100% vibe in Kill's book where it's like, here's the Mothman, here's what he's like. These ones also kind of paint the Mothman in some different images to where he might be a little bit friendly, he might be a harbinger. And it's one of those things that it's really exciting to explore all the different avenues of how people thought of the Mothman. That's a very good point. Uh, and and Kill's book, I I don't know if he actually ever uses the word Mothman because that was going to have a different title to it i want to say it was the year of the uh i want to say aruga i'm drawing a blank but i'm pulling it out of the back of my mind garuda is it garuda 
I think it's Garuda. That might be it. That sounds really I accurate. Think, I should look it up. I, Let me. My Mothman research here. is a little blurred at this point because we've done so much. But at the same time, I, we will definitely double check that. And get no, you got it. Already done. It is the year oh, of the sweet. Garuda. You're totally right. So the Garuda being a, I want to say that's a an Indian or um, it's, it, it's really close, like close to Indian um, mm-hmm. lore and being some sort of flying creature and when i say indian i mean the actual country of india not native americans yes so that name got shot down by the publishers how that story goes it just wouldn't have quote wouldn't have worked over here so they go with mothman prophecies now what's interesting pagan is uh, you know aside from him not using the word mothman these sightings actually may have started in the point pleasant area as much as 50 years before the climax of this case uh, quick context climax the case being the silver bridge collapsing so that yes. being a huge monumental shift in uh, the 1966 1967 ufo flap of west virginia for for things to be seen a flying bird type creature 50 years before somewhere in the 1914 to 1940s window over the ohio river Mm-hmm. It expands the case way bigger than you'd think. It goes from that yes, small UFO flap to decades. Absolutely. And hopefully we'll have time to also kind of get into as we explore this case too, is Mothman wasn't just located 100% in Point Pleasant. He's all throughout Appalachia. Yeah. And it's so many different crazy sightings with it. So hopefully we'll have some time to, you know, eventually dig into that as we go throughout this case. And it's just one of those really cool things that the biggest question that I have with this case is why is Mothman here? What is the his purpose? That is like, very good. It's just very fascinating. I agree with that. This is this is a cryptid uh, as we dive in. Yeah, this is a cryptid that defies most of the normal explanations of why it might be there. Uh, people are mm-hmm. pretty good at coming up with, with like, you know, our own ideas of why a certain cryptid might be hanging around. This one, very, very, very obscure. So over the Ohio River in the 1914 window, a large black bird with the head of a man, the wingspan of a dozen feet, covered in dark reddish feathers was seen. That sets us up for mm, what's like about 10 oh i'm sorry more like more like a 30 some years of on and off sightings in that area of of large winged creatures now this is not new to you mm-hmm. and i who've already talked about the idea of thunderbirds big yes big birds that are known from native american lore they are sometimes considered um sentient other times mm-hmm. more animalistic but these birds well known all well i should say the the lore stretches across the country we've said that that goes up to uh, even alaska like areas have it but the whole way up to maine on the other side there's a lot of this flying creature going on but it really begins kicking off in the 1960s 1966 uh there is a sighting in clendenum i believe is the name of it west virginia Pardon me, West Virginians, if I'm butchering any of these words, where four (laughs) men are out at night digging a grave. As they're digging, they claim to see a flying man pass overhead of them. So much so it startled them and they had to look out of the grave like, what the heck was that? What's what's flying above us? Mm -hmm. 
all the more hitting home because this area, well, the West Virginia area has had lore dating back saying that the land was cursed to begin with. That's why we've we've said on a couple episodes that Native American tribes uh, apparently didn't settle the area. At least that is the modern understanding of it. Uh, There's Flatwoods monster type activity in the area. Another UFO kind of related one where the Flatwoods monster appears uh, in West Virginia after lights are seen in the sky. And then they see this very tall, like glowing creature follow them out of uh, come out of the woods there. Very, very creepy sort of stuff. One that we're going to have to do our own episode on the future. But that's 1952. Flatwoods, right? So he he's about 10, 15 years before priming everyone. You know, everyone's kind of on edge because this is building, right? It feels like it's kind of mm-hmm. crescendoing in that area. It is crescendoing. And it's one of those things, too, that that area, the, the Appalachian area, at one point in time when I was doing my research and we were talking about Hillier, and in Hillier, when they're interviewing Darren I always butcher his name. Uh, Woodrow Derenberger's uh, daughter, Tanya, mm-hmm. she actually stated that the Appalachians were, gr- uh, the mountains were a great place for creatures and aliens and anything from other dimensions, other worlds. They went there to hide. Ooh. So they don't really know why they picked Appalachia, but other than it was heavily wooded and it was a great place to hide. So Maybe that's why it's just ripe with paranormal activity. Very well could be. That's a great point to set some of the scene in the area, too, because the most famous sighting, which we'll be diving into in a minute, happens in the McClintock Wildlife Area, which previously Mm -hmm. in World War II had, uh, I believe it's World War II, had been like munitions factory area. There's also an abandoned power plant in there. Uh, there, so, again, grounds that are, well, human habitation of a very interesting kind happen there. Power generation, munition generate, like all that kind of explosive and energy related stuff definitely has a draw with the larger scope of UFOs. And we've talked about, again, UFOs hovering uh, nuclear silos and stuff like that. So when we consider an area that might seem kind of sexy to a mothman type extra dimensional or uh, ultra or uh, ex- extraterrestrial ultra terrestrial type from this you know outside this world or outside of this dimension mm-hmm. they might find that area to be very interesting because of the well i don't know some of the material that might be left behind in some of that uh, yeah, possibly. I think that when it comes to munitions, I think that, you know, there's nitrogen, I think there's sulfur, and all sorts of other kind of interesting chemicals, which have all kind of been associated with UFO lore, and paranormal lore. So those kind of things, if there are residue or stockpilings of these chemicals that have been left over in this area, maybe it's like, I don't know, kind of like putting out scent bait for these creatures. Oh. I don't know. That's a real good point. Do you remember that massive explosion that uh, rocked the world last this past summer-ish? Yeah. Um, I forget where that was. Is it Libya or something like that? And I, uh, yes. Uh, Libya, I think. I, don't, I, I, I had to I look it up. it was in but a different part of the world, and I'd have to look it up. That was a fertilizer it. explosion. Mm-hmm. And we already have interesting connections to 
Betty and Barney Hill having fertilized her in the back of their car. That kind of yes. nitrate sort of thing really does draw, uh, well, apparently draws UFOs, like you said, maybe a scent bait, but also a great example of, and unfortunately a very tragic example of how powerful that stuff can be. Uh, you know, when mm-hmm. someone, I'm sure, I don't don't feel bad, any listener out there, because I mean, I'm with you too. A year ago, I would have been like, okay, yeah, fertilizer sure has some explosive properties, but like, you know, what, what's the big deal about that? You know, skip forward to now we've seen what happens when you stockpile it, you neglect it, and it can literally blow apart city blocks if you have enough mm-hmm. of it concentrated. So the idea really ramps up in my mind, yeah, okay, that 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 is some destructive power. If you're someone coming from, you know, a different planet or, or whatever, I don't know why you wouldn't just go to a fertilizer fact per se uh but that i'll leave to the hands of of those critters to tell us sunday back to our our location though so we have these these grave diggers seeing him in 1966 then we see <laughs> a, a jeff wamsley here who claim uh claimed tv was going at a fever pitch in his house so this is just a, an average resident in the area he's in his home his TV starts whirling up to this really, really high, weird, screeching audio level to the point that he's actually going in the room to turn it down. And apparently the TV set blew out. Not terribly mm-hmm. uncommon for the 60s. Like, I don't want to say that happened a lot, but we have history to say that those TV sets did explode. Uh, yes. So the explosion. Fairly common. Yeah. The explosion part possible. What caused the explosion? That's what I find weird. So it's making this high-pitched thing, blows out onto the floor. His dog has been barking in the background this entire time, clawing, I believe, at the door. He goes out to the porch, runs out to see the dog taking off into the field. And in that field, he sees red lights, not eyes, like many say with the Mothman. I've seen two glowing red orbs keeping with each other. But these ones seem to be swirling and spinning at one another. Still mm-hmm. very freaking weird. It to me is like, it, well, I, this is totally my assumption, but in some ways it feels like this thing was starting to manifest um, somehow. At least at this guy's property, something with manifestation feels like it was happening. He's getting some sort of crazy static on the TV. It blows up, sees lights spinning in his yard in a very unusual pattern. That sounds and, like when and- stuff starts to happen. It does sound like stuff starts to happen. And this being, you know, point the Point Pleasant area and the Appalachian Mountains area is what Keel would call a window area. Mm-hmm. Just like when we looked at Skinwalker, Skinwalker was a window area. In this case specifically, the, this incident with Mr. Walmsley and his dog reminded me a lot of Skinwalker when I researched it. Because the dog goes out chasing these lights and the dog never comes home. Yeah. And it's one of those things of perhaps some, this may not have been the Mothman thing. This might have been an alien thing. This might have been a UFO. We don't really know exactly what it was in this field. But at the same time, it's one of these things that these, the incident with the dogs from Skinwalker and the incident with the dog from this area are eerily similar. And it's one of those things of why is it so similar? Like, why are, why are they, they going after and, you know, terrorizing the dogs. Why are these things happening? And these dogs are going to investigate. 
And obviously the dogs seem to be a threat to them and the dogs don't make it back. So it was one of those things that it really struck some correlation with me between the two cases. And I'm like, okay, all right, we've got some cool stuff that's lining up between window areas. And it's very cool to think about that two areas across the country from each other have eerie similarities to each other. Very good point. Uh, it, yes, and it's interesting to note. So the lights in the 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 Skinwalker case were a blue glowing mm-hmm. light in this. Now, I, there are some differences I'll point out. These lights, at least in this story from Jeff Wamsley, apparently, well, I, I don't know that they show any kind of sentience, first of all. They, they might in other stories. But in this one, I personally didn't hear of any sentience where the Skinwalker ones Yes, did. they were sentient. The the Skinwalker yeah. ones very very sentient. They would harass uh, the Gormans on a, a, apparently a regular basis. Uh, they would definitely taunt and toy with the dogs. Now this case again, uh, just a lack of my knowledge. I didn't hear about these ones taunting or toying with anyone. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious to either. know if these ones ever do show any kind of cognizance. You know, do they, do they toy with people ever? Or are they gonna? Whew, but that that one's gonna we're gonna tackle that a little bit more in our next couple episodes when we dive a little further mm-hmm. into UFO sticking sticking with this sort of stuff. Uh, we see a lot of again the typical pre manifestation sort of thing. This is the glowing lights in the sky. Uh, it should also be noted that those grave diggers um, and even for the Flatwoods monster had aerial lights going on. So this this aerial phenomena continues on and on and on. Now, f- the most famous sighting of the Mothman, this takes place on November 15th of 1966. And this is according, by the way, um, to George Dudding, a local author uh, and former, former schoolmate of Stephen and Mary Mallet, two of our stars of the story. So Stephen mm-hmm. and Mary Mallet are married. They are in the car with Roger and Linda Scarberry, also a couple married. So they're out in a drive going around, and that, that TNT area that we mentioned, the McClintock Wildlife Space, was used as kind of a lover's point, lover's hangout. They did drag racing and other other just teenage stuff there, dorking around, um, you know, or, or young adult stuff. And in this case, this being the most famous of the cases, they thought they saw a man standing along the side of the road near that abandoned power plant. And when they saw it, they noticed that it was running towards the North Power Plant. Linda describes it as hobbling through the grass. So it's like awkwardly running on legs. And as for the wings, they were at the time tucked into its back. Kind of a common thing. In fact, in the other small town mm-hmm. monsters thing, we're going to hear in the future that some of the more recent sightings, they've seen it kind of huddled on their roofs with it, with its wings wrapped around its body. So it's, it's, it's doing this, it's running into the plant. They thought at that point that they were going to get in touch with the sheriff. This is weird. Let's, let's start going back to town. Let's, let's report this. Let's get to Point Pleasant. When they actually mm-hmm. got into Route 66, they turned south to Point Pleasant, and there they saw him again, this time standing near a billboard. Red eyes and all. His wings shot out, and then he goes straight up, which is uh, a lot of people should be noted, call question about the Mothman physics. 
His wings are yes. not described as being that large compared to birds and, and other things that would just need to get our human body weight into the air. So very, mm-hmm. very strange in his movement. But stranger still, they decide to book it. They're going about 90 to 95, potentially even at one point saying they hit 100 miles per hour on this straight stretch of road. And during that time, the Mothman creature was able to keep up with their car. They would see these red lights as it would continue going kind of above it. It would kind of disappear here and there. But it was keeping up with it until they hit the city limits. That's when they actually got in touch with the sheriff. And uh, as soon as the news media got hold of that story, Pagan... Can you guess what people's first reaction was when they heard there might be a Mothman creature going around? <laughs> well, generally, probably fear. And then, it, you know, it, that it was a creature being from West Virginia, especially rural West, West Virginia. They probably thought it would be a good idea to just go out and hunt this thing. Good guess on the fear, but wrong. You're right on the second part. They just wanted to kill it because that beyond asking if they could kill the one, they wanted to know if there was more, could they kill multiples? Which is yes. the sign of trophy hunters. <laughs> if you ever uh, ever want to pick a trophy hunter out of a lineup, see who wants to kill the most animals and critters they don't know about. That's the <laughs> easiest way to tell. So, yes, in this case, it's described that actually they weren't terrified, interestingly enough. I mean, the couple was, but the townsfolk were more interested in killing it. So say local folks that are talking about it now. Uh, I, I, I think for, for, for just the, the kindness of, of folks in history... We can say that that might be a little bit of a translated story. It might kind of have gotten a little bit of a a legs of its own showing Mm -hmm. the gumption of people going to shoot it. But apparently more of a kill vibe than a fear thing. Which, you know, that's really interesting because I don't know if it's just a, a difference in time periods, but, you know, most people now wouldn't want to murder something per se. They would kind of be afraid of it and want to know more about it. And then, you know, possibly want to get rid of it. But ultimately they don't really, they'd be afraid of it more than anything. So that they were excited about this and they wanted to hunt this thing. That ultimately makes you go, huh, that's weird. Like genuinely, that seems weird to me. And I don't know, maybe, like I said, it could have been totally a time period thing. But for my brain and my understanding, I would have been genuinely freaked out that this was in my town. And And it's just weird. It's really a weird, bizarre thing. To that point, so strange. In this case, again, from this documentary, we heard that the National Guard was called in not to stop Mm -hmm. the Mothman. But to regulate the hunters, because there were so many people going into that TNT area armed, uh, you know, previously being in government space, just having a ton of, of, of news media attention that apparently the National Guard had to step in, control who was going in and answering and addressing that question as best as possible about can we shoot this thing? Yeah, very, very, <laughs> very interesting. I, I also, back to your point, I'd like to believe people wouldn't want to shoot it these days, but also I will guarantee that you and I, 
aren't the people that would go and shoot these things. And I doubt most of the people listening to this podcast are, but I'd say for all the people in the world that aren't listening to these podcasts, I'd say they're the ones that are 90% more likely to go out and try and shoot it. So bless you listeners out there that are uh, learning and and growing about this stuff. I do fear that even in this modern age, because we still have like Bigfoot hunters and stuff out there, they Mm -hmm. they do still exist. I do worry that, you know, depending on the audience, depending on the area, and like you said, depending on the time period, all probably factor into the uh, killability of the villagers, <laughs> of the people that are witnessing it. Well, I mean, Frankenstein's monster was chased with Good torches point. and pitchforks. So, yeah. I mean, that doesn't speak well for humanity. <laughs> no. And I want to say it was the, the it might be the Boggy Creek monster that I was listening to something about. Not too long. I want to say it was Boggy Creek. This is kind of irrelevant. But, uh. I want to say it was Boggy Creek on last podcast that, yeah, one of the first things that happened there was people were like, we're going to go kill it. We're going to go hunt it. I'm like, oh, gosh. Okay. Uh, that's not okay in my book, but uh, it's all history now. So all yeah. we can do is retell it and say, folks, don't shoot what you don't know. First of all, bad firearm etiquette. Second of all, bad human etiquette. Maybe in the yes. opposite order. <laughs> but let's talk also a smidge about why it could be bad etiquette. Now, this this is going to start to open up stuff for a future episode, but we can't avoid talking about it. One of the books that we're going to be reading that I've already just started a little bit of it. I'm, I'm loving it. Woodrow Derenberger's Visitors from Lanulos tells the story <laughs> of him meeting a character by the name of Cold along Route 77. So this is this is going on in uh, November 2nd, 1966. Darren Berger is driving home from his job. He, he was a uh, I believe he did a lot of sewing machine salesman yes. sort of he stuff. Was a, he was a sewing machine salesman. And apparently some talk potentially about doing repair work and stuff like that on the side. But I, I, here nor there with that stuff. It's Darren Berger is an interesting character once we get the book done we'll, we'll tell you more gonna do a lot of injured cold but he's met on the road by a craft that lands and covers up the interstate route so it actually kind of parks on its side if you will elongated craft blocking the road so darren Berger pulls over and speaking about not shooting what you don't know this character came out like many of our stories and spoke to darren Berger telepathically he starts mm-hmm. to tell darren Berger about himself and the area that he comes from being the planet lanulos in the galaxy of ganymede now mm-hmm. one interesting note just just for everyone out there in this first encounter he only introduces himself as cold so when you're doing research and you see a book that says ah he was first introduced as indrid cold as far as i've come to know that book is jumping if you if you see that in any sort of articles they are leaping so just be very cautious like pagan and i always like to point out when it comes to our journalistic side knowing some of the real hard facts of the case can also help you debunk or at least sort through articles that don't have their validity in order yes just just an interesting one because the name indrid will come later with their we're saving that for a future episode but that's going to come in another psychic contact where it gives more information back Mm -hmm. to our 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 journey along the side of the road though 
relays all this information, says we come in peace, we do not wish to harm you, please don't be afraid, don't be afraid, do not be afraid. It's it's one of those sort of things. You and I saw this with the Hills, Betty and Barney Hill, and they're mm-hmm. looking in the craft, and he's beaming stuff into uh, Barney Hill's head, saying very similarly, like, don't run off, don't leave, stay around, we want to talk to you, this is all good. Don't know if there's a connection between those two. They said that they're from a different place, but we're starting to see, again, an overlap in activity or at least personal abilities of these humanoid creatures. There's so many different abilities and overlaps, and like you're saying, with these cases. And it's one of those things of it really does kind of make you question how many races of extraterrestrials, ultraterrestrials, whatever we'd like to call them, have visited our planet, have communicated with us. How many actually do mean us harm? How many are just curious and want to, you know, start intergalactic relations? It's one of those things that you really start to question so much and you're just like, wow. And yet, at the same time, we're so terrified as a human race of what's beyond. Well, some of us are. Some of us are genuinely excited about it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so, uh, but ultimately, you know, beings like Indra Cold and his crewmates and those who interacted with Betty and Barney Hill, those are the ones that you kind of wish you knew more about, but their contact was limited. Yeah. And even though Indra Cold had worked with uh, Darenberger's family for quite some time, it was still one of those things that it was still very limited and they only knew so much. So in that regard, it's kind of sad because we're not privy to more information about these really awesome creatures that are out there. It's a very good point. And it does, um, hmm, it does beg the question. There, There is, not to burst anyone's bubble with a Mothman case, because I, I do genuinely believe, again, that there's something here there is a lot of documentation to this phenomena. I will point out, though, that there is rightful amounts of doubt cast into some of these situations. So, Gray Barker is a character, I believe I was looking for his name maybe on last week's episode. Gray Barker is a character who's accused of potentially making some of this stuff up. And I believe Gray Barker even confessed that he made prank calls to Keel under the name of Indrid Cold in, in, in some of these occasions. So it's one of those unfortunate things that I believe a lot of the story has real solid roots. However, it just needs to be noted that some of this stuff could totally be 1960s practical joking sort of stuff um not even as practical jokes but to make cash you know to sell to sell uh headlines right to sell books Mm -hmm. because that's what gray barker was apparently doing now that's a figure i have a limited amount on so i'm not going to sit here and drag gray barker or anything other than to say that's what i know uh some of that comes i believe our way thanks to alan greenfield who is on a pot like in hellier and Mm -hmm. i want to say i heard him i should try and dig up the episode but i want to say i heard him in a podcast talking about that where it was like yeah there's just some skill uh keel skepticism going on we don't all know what's real some of these flaps might have been made up but even at times though uh, when greenfield talks about this he says 
that the phenomena that came from some of these fake outs winded up being real. So even when, you know, mm-hmm. a fake out was perpetrated, a, a hoax, it actually led people to quote unquote real finds, real experiences, which brings the synchronicity thing right back onto the table. That if like like let me just say, if I were sitting here today, theoretically, synchronicity wise, you know, maybe I'll get the vibe. I'm gonna do a prank call. But if uh Pagan receives a prank call and it still gets her to go out and investigate something and find something, it mm-hmm. makes you wonder was that just a whim on my part to place a fake call? Or, you know, was Gray Barker actually moved into place like a bunch of chess pawns? That really just gives me Terry Wrist vibes from now Right? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I, you can, you, I, I yeah. mean, think about that. That's one of those things that, that that's like, absolutely, especially in season two when they get the crazy emails in from season two. Yeah. In Hellier, yes. And those emails are just so out there that you're like this can't be legit but they end up going and investigating and substantiating some of it and so it's one of those things that you're just like were those pranks or was this real phenomenon that or ultimately led it to real phenomenon was it the precursor to the phenomenon before it was going to happen and so you know looking at all those different things that so if kill got those fake calls and the phenomenon ended up happening yeah it kind of makes you really question, is somebody behind the scenes pulling some strings? Not to get too in the weeds of conspiracies, but ultimately it's one of those things that it just makes you go, huh, I'm curious about this now. (laughs) It's a good, huh? Because as you know, but as our audience might not, we we consider Hellier to be kind of mandatory watching for for real (laughs) Mothman diver inners. So, of course, we have the human element anywhere in the world. We know humans can corrupt and ruin stuff all the time. It's one of our favorite pastimes. But for the moment, let's just say that whatever was pushed into place was done so in a greater cosmic way. That might sound ridiculous to some folks listening, like really some entity or whatever can cosmically push people into place like that. But I also, if you have that gut instinct, I would remind you that five minutes ago you listened to me say that... uh, Indrid Cold was beaming telepathic messages into Woodrow Derenberger, a a, uh, a sewing machine salesman's brain on his way home from work. So if you bought that one part of the story, you probably need to get into the second part here, which is, I mean, if someone has the ability for telepathic communication in that way, is it nearly as hard to push people in place like a bunch of chess pawns? Because we don't know if Indrid Cole. Can, well, we, I guess we do know he can read minds. We know we know mm-hmm. because he tells Derenberger, people are often startled in this state. You can talk to me through physical word of mouth or mental. Either is fine by me. Whatever best for you. Not to mention that also, um, Cole told him. He actually asked him, like, "Why are you afraid?" Like what's wrong with you kind of scenario. So if he's asking them that and Darren Berger doesn't, you know, audibly say I'm afraid of you, but he's freaking out inside of his own head. It makes you really go, why are you afraid? You don't need to fear me. It's cool. You're I'm, I'm your friend. I'm not here to hurt you. And then he kind of calms down because at that point, you know, 
maybe he was exuding it physically and he could see it, but probably he was freaking out on the inside of his head because that's what humans do when we get into, before we vocalize it, usually it's in the head because our head has to process it. And then our head and our body and our mouth and everything else reacts after our brain has already freaked out. That's true. That's a very good point. Well, on the note of fear, I'm going to skip down a little bit in our notes because that's very, very relevant. That one of the last people uh, in that documentary to talk about seeing the Mothman is Lawrence Gray. He's a school teacher who is laying in bed. He quotes at about three in the morning. He's got a window at the left side of his room, and he's laying kind of looking out that window, as one does groggily. Sees car passing outside. And when that car passed, he kind of turns his head, only to see something standing next to him at his bed. Something that he describes, from a very Christian point of view, even as he says he's a hardcore Christian, he sees this, what he describes as, quote, the devil standing next to his bed. He tried to talk, but couldn't. And calls it an evil presence because he feels it into his core. He feels a negative energy next to him. And at that point, he proceeds to pray in which that entity moves away. Now, this is also uh, an interestingly common theme. Like we talked about last week, Keel in the book mentions these kind of zones of fear uh, that he finds Mm -hmm. in that area. Zones that he can almost map physically by walking in and out of them where they kind of, oh, they, well, they just, they override how he's feeling. So he goes yes. from being interested in investigating to walking into that where, you know, all hair stands on end and he needs to get out, gets out of it, gets his senses back, you know, gets that in, uh, investigative vibe back, walks right back in. And he kind of did that a couple times uh, as he describes in the Mothman prophecies. Mm-hmm. But it's very, very interesting. We, we talk about this a lot throughout the episodes that this feeling of fear is a, a kind of a really, really strong aura that affects people. It, it yes. comes up in a lot of these high strangeness cases almost. Well, you know, interesting compared to our, our uh, infrasound episode, we talked about that, like, you can weaponize sound to, to move people away from an area. I wonder mm-hmm. then if any of these extraterrestrial types or ultra-terrestrial types, maybe they have some way of creating a zone of fear to scare people away from a place. Because talking about crowd dispersion sort of stuff, I would argue a zone of fear might be one of the most humane ways to go, but better than better than zapping people with microwave beams, right? That that cooks you yeah. and physically hurts. <laughs> but if you're, a, if you're a, uh, an alien that has some understanding of humans and let's say you are coming to the planet to try and investigate like um injured cold might have been to learn stuff i'm not saying that he was the one doing the 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 zone of fear but just to say if if you're trying to do clandestine missions simply making people not want to go to an area is is going to keep your stuff pretty hidden except for us and to add to that as well we've got you know as we were saying earlier that the Appalachians are dense Mm -hmm. and a really quote unquote great place for these creatures and these aliens and all of these uh, extraterrestrials, ultra terrestrials and everything in between to hide and creating a zone of fear, whether it be through infrasound, magnetic waves, whatever it may be, 
whatever you're creating, that might be your way of saying, I've moved in. I'm putting up a fence. I don't want to be bugged. Leave me alone. That's a good point. And maybe that's kind of what Mothman does, especially around this TNT area where they claim that Mothman lives. Maybe that's his way of saying, I moved in. Please go away. I don't really want neighbors. I don't really want friends. I don't really want to do anything. Just leave me be. So maybe that's what those walls of fear really are, those pockets. Uh, The other thing, too, is that there are some that say that those pockets of fear and that kind of where you feel like you've stepped into something different Mm -hmm. kind of areas, those are also possibly portals. So when you kind of get into those things of maybe it's a wall that's a protector or maybe it's a portal, and these are window areas where we have multiple sightings of multiple things that are overlapping with each other. I don't know. I, I I kind of like have a foot in both of those theories. So I I think that either one is a very valid point. I don't know exactly why there's pockets of fear, but I think that those are valid theories. You know, one thing that's c- kind of come up in my mind now about the, the pocket of fear sort of thing, if that is a way to keep people away, it is telling that they don't really understand how humans work versus more base <laughs> animals. Because mm-hmm. for a, a dog or a cat, that would work. They're going to be scared away and they're not going to come back. For a human, right. though, you're probably going to scare away a couple people. But I, I think that's why we've become the dominant overt sentient life form on Earth is that you might scare away. You might even kill a couple thousand of us. but we will pretty much always come back in force as again, we see here in this case where, Hey, there's a Mothman. Ah, oh, we're scared. We're teenagers. We're going home. We're going to tell the sheriff what's going on. Okay. Now the rest of the town's going to go out with their guns and try and shoot as many Mothmen as they can find. Like that's our, that is my issue with humans in general, but also uh, <laughs> why humans are so freaking durable is their urge to just go and kick the crap out of whatever scares or harms others of their kind. So if it's a if it's a toy or, you know, a tool to keep people away, don't think it exactly works. Again, Keel's a great example, too, because he's walking in and out of that zone of fear until he can figure it out. Mm-hmm. This And it's just a really interesting thing to kind of think about that maybe these are animalistic to the point that they don't really understand that. And they're just animals that have moved here from another dimension and trying to, you know, just live. Whereas if they are sentient beings, it might just be a more primitive version of something. I don't know, but it's, it's an interesting thing to really think about. It is because, uh, so back to Indrid for a minute before we drop them for the week and save the rest of Indrid cold stuff for, for one of our next episodes. So those people, they describe themselves as, as basically humans. They, very similar environment. They describe, they have cities as well. They have a different word for them that um, is used by Darren Berger. I think he, I can't remember the name. I'll have to dig that up. But they have a little bit different of a name for, for cities. They live about eh, like a max of 175 Earth years, but on their planet. So they got a nice long lifetime. Overall, human though, sentient. But the Mothman, Mm -hmm. we don't know. We don't know. In some of these cases, the Mothman's, well, I guess in a lot of these cases, the Mothman has very similar, but some different physical appearances. One of them that I see here in our notes is that the Mothman actually, apparently, 
does not have a neck in some of the sightings. Now, this could be due to it having kind of feathery fur sort of stuff that hides mm-hmm. it. Maybe, you know, you know what I mean? Like animals, uh, sometimes hard to tell where their neck begins and ends. But in this case, described as having a head just directly on the shoulders. Uh, the red eyes are a very, very common theme. And then the wings are pretty much always in some form similar but uh, again, a lot of these cases are seen at nighttime, so folks get very blurry or, or hard-to-outline views. In one of our upcoming, and I think, Pagan, you might have said uh, to me off-air that you started the book already, but Tobias uh-huh. Whalen's book about Lake Michigan Mothman, our friends over on the Singular Fortean Society, they cover current Mothman sightings. And you see that a lot, that these, these, this critter, whatever it is, the red eyes and the black silhouette of wings seems to be the most common trait. But otherwise, they start to differ from there. Yes, absolutely. And it's one of those things that the, the Mothman description kind of varies. There, there are some that say that he's kind of mist-shrouded and, you know, that there's others that say that his wings have kind of a leathery look to them. Mm-hmm instead of feathers so his even though his um appearance changes a little bit mostly it stays the same but if you also look at the anatomy of a moth they don't really have a neck either so his namesake is very apropos i guess (laughs) that's an interesting one um I, i find that interesting that you said that i'm glad you did because interestingly enough most of the cases i come across say that the moth is actually a poor comparison. So we may have found like the one that actually speaks to what a moth is. A lot of the time, mm-hmm. more bird-like in in people's reflection of it. The name Mothman was just dubbed by newspapers that hadn't had any personal sightings of it. Uh, but it was a name that was put out there, and that's the name that stuck. It is interesting, though. Like I said, so glad you called that out, because that becomes its own little mini thing within the community is is how to get its name why mothman it's not well again most witnesses will say it's not a moth so that's why the name is bizarre birdman would have been more accurate uh but birdman wasn't the one that got ran with so (laughs) we got one encounter that you're right it kind of sounds like uh that might be a little accurate but as for the rest of it again more leathery wings so definitely not moth-like uh, right. Feathers. Again, I guess that's where they get more of that bird from. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, very, very hard to say. So let's uh, let's see if there's any other cases we can fit in here for time's sake today. Oh, actually, we're getting kind of close to the end of this episode. So we might have to save a couple more uh, for the future, which we could just kind of toss in for people. But ultimately, as we wrap up our our, our first episode here on the true cryptid of the area it's just a note there are a ton of small individual sightings out there that you can absolutely dive into we'll have some more of them in our show notes that pagan will mm-hmm. be putting up on the blog so absolutely check that out chaosandshadow.com forward slash news you get some of the more details but we wanted to get good ones in here uh for this one pagan is there any others you want to call out before we kind of wrap this one up you know, there's like so many of these cases that they're all so good. It's hard to pick 
it's really difficult to just decide on an individual one to throw in. Hmm. I would say probably, I like the Thomas Urie one where he he sees the Mothman while he's driving and he thinks that it's a helicopter. And, you know, it it proceeds over the circle of trees, maybe about 500 foot area. And during that circle, it would get lower and lower as close to about 75 feet over the car. And it has about a 10 foot wingspan, which is about average for our, our Mothman friend. And he was scared more than anything at first, but ultimately it seemed like it was curious about him more than freaking him out. So it's a really interesting case to kind of think about that. You know, we have so many cases that paint Mothman as this scary thing and other cases that paint him as this curious creature who just kind of wants to know about us. Right. Lawrence Gray, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, uh, Thomas Urie, my apologies. Uh, Thomas, uh, right when he's in the car, that was a very interesting story because his was his was a recorded interview we got to listen to snippets of thanks to Small Town Monsters, mm-hmm. and like you said, he says at first it's like there there was fear of the unknown. He was afraid that just what what is that? But as soon as it got into sight better, he wasn't really afraid about it. It it was more curious about him and potentially as he says like maybe a little bit more afraid of him. I think that's a wonderful one to throw in there. Um, it really is. And, and it kind of really makes it go back to the whole thing of Mothman might actually be more creature than, you know, humanoid. Because it's it reacts in a lot of ways more animalistic than it does as a sentient being. And it's one of those things that it's like, okay, I'm not here to hurt you. It, you know, I'm going to intimidate you to show you that you can't hurt me. But... I'm not actually going to hurt you. And it it just seems very curious. It seems a lot like we would find, you know, like a wild animal. It's like, I'm going to be curious, but don't mess with me. I'll bite you. So I don't know. Mothman's a favorite of mine. He always has been. And, you know, he's kind of one of those things that if I ever came across him, I'd just be like, can I pat your head, please? (laughs) That's all I want. Mothman (laughs) seems so cool. One of the things that we we have to say before we walk away from this um, kind of a just opener, really, again, this is still in the opening phases of this investigation. Big question remains. Is Mothman a bringer of doom or is he an omen bringer? That will be one for our audience. You guys, I encourage you, leave us some comments on the blog there. Feel free to email mm-hmm. us. All that stuff's in the description. But let us know. What do you think? Did he foreshadow the Silver Bridge collapse, uh, which resulted in about 46 people losing their lives? That was a big thing for a small town. So when that bridge collapses, Mm -hmm. that is the strong crescendo of the creature because he's seen up until that point. And I can only imagine, like, I I really can only imagine what it was like to be in a, growing up in a small town of that size, can only imagine what was happening when you've got all these really cool, exciting yet scary sightings at night like uh, just people flocking to the area to go see what's going on there's there's an energy in the air of both fear and mysticism for it to end with the bridge collapsing a lot of people losing their lives and really hurting a small town because that bridge was their huge connection to ohio and a lot of trade used that bridge Mm -hmm. arguably too much trade uh that bridge was not 
being maintenance the way it should. It was handling much too heavy traffic for what it was made to do. Basically, a small connector bridge turned into a major transit hub. And this is, you know, the, the failing of uh, infrastructure. But with that, the Mothman seemingly disappears afterwards. There's a couple more sightings, but then it all starts to dwindle. So we are led to believe. But as we continue with our story, we're going to find out in the Mothman legacy film by Small Town Monsters, they go and continue the research. Yes. So to everyone listening along, thank you so much. This is personally, I think, my favorite uh, cryptidy thing because this was the one that as a child opened my eyes to what is an ultra terrestrial. And that really sparked probably my lifelong fascination with the paranormal is what if this Mothman creature does not just go and hide in a cave? What if it actually phases into a different reality afterwards? Um, what if it is from off of our planet? You know, is it intelligent enough to use a ship? As pagan as some of these we're going to see in our next couple episodes, we'll talk about the men in black. Is the Mothman potentially being hunted by off-world mm-hmm. creatures, uh, people, whatever we want to call them, entities? Are they trying to cover up his tracks? Are they... We don't know. We don't know. There's just going to be so much. There is so much good stuff coming, and I'm excited to dive deeper yes. into all of it. Pagan, thank you so much for joining me as always. Thank you so much for for all of your research and your brain, bringing it all to the party so you can have these fantastic conversations a huge thank you again to our listeners that have been absolutely amazing in keeping these series going. If you would like to continue doing that, Peg and I have set up a wonderful subscription program up on the website, chaosandshadow.com. Mm-hmm. Click on the Become a Member link there. That thing is completely controlled by us through Wix, which is beautiful. And if you've ever been unhappy with Patreon because they're managing your data and all that other kind of stuff, It's gone now. We just use PayPal and Square. So that means you can check out through all the traditional mechanisms using your cards or your your PayPal accounts. But we don't see a thing of that. And it is such a kickback to the show because now that subscription no longer goes to supporting folks like Patreon. It goes all to us and making these episodes happen. And Pagan, you've got beautiful things up on the occult shop. I love all the incense and spell bottles you're selling. So I think we should we do. And we're actually going to be doing some great stuff for our cult Sunday stuff. This episode will come after that, but you guys can always head over to the Facebook group and watch the video for that. That will be in the archives. So we're going to be doing some pet protection stuff. I'm going to be showing everybody how to make a pet, our pet protection spell bottle. So if you're one of those types of people that you're just like, I simply just don't want to make it. Can you make it for me? Yes, I can. And you can go to the occult shop and actually purchase them wonderful all products made with love and again they all go back to keeping the show running so check that out check out the the videos on the facebook group those links are in the show notes check out our wonderful interview with the amazing devin hunter as he just slathers us in compliments (laughs) It, it it seems like we planned that show to blow smoke up our butts but we couldn't have imagined getting that kind of high praise right at the start of a show so huge shout mm-hmm. out to Devin. huge shout out to all of our people coming on uh, a big thing to look forward to we have carl pfeiffer and connor randall two of the crew of hellier coming on we are going to be asking them indrid cold questions because come on who who else has been investigating Indrid Cold to the degree the Hellier crew has lately? They've been <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> going 
hard down that rabbit hole, figuring out all little mysteries. So uh, we're just going to pick their brains on on Injured Cold, the, the man, the myth, the legend. If you have questions that you would like to have us ask, please submit them. Contact form up on the website, find in the footer. You can find it a couple different places. Get into that contact form, write us those questions up, and we would be happy to take as many as we can, jam them into that show, and give you a fantastic interview. But as for yes. this week, Pagan, I think that's about all I have to, to shout out. I think that's pretty much all we've got lined up for these great folks. And stay tuned next week. We'll yes. see you guys soon. Oh, thank you so much, everyone. We will catch you next week. Be safe. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.